You're listening to a Fundshack private chat, number 29. Welcome to Fundshack. I'm Ross Butler, and today I'm here with Luke Johnson, a well-known entrepreneur, businessman, philanthropist, and private investor. Luke, welcome. And I have to say thanks so much for for coming to meet us physically, because this is the first time we've been back in the studio for 18 months. And personally, I think it makes a real difference. Nice to see you. Happy to be here. I was looking over your bio in preparation for this, and I had to say, and I don't say this just to flatter you, but I was amazed at the breadth of your um, your undertakings and your achievements. So you've got, obviously, um, a varied portfolio. And within that, I recognized about three quarters of the businesses. Now, you do consumer, so maybe that's not so surprising. But that leapt out of me. Then you've been... Uh, uh, a successful newspaper columnist over years, if not decades, and I know that that's not easy to sustain. Uh, and you've been very active on the philanthropic side. You've published books. Um, this is quite a productive repertoire. Um, now, you only get one life, so it obviously doesn't seem strange to you, but why do you think it is that you've managed to be uh, so productive across so many relatively varied domains? Well, I think I've always liked to be busy, and um, I have a father who has had an extremely long career, and uh, although he stuck to the one career of being a writer, a journalist, and an historian, he he um, was incredibly productive and wrote many, many millions of words and published 40 books and so forth. So I think he gave me a, a good example to follow as a role model. Um, and you know, to a degree, I think life is what you make of it. And uh, if you have the energy, there are always opportunities. Um, I think given that most of us perhaps will live to, you know, be in our 80s, that means we might well have a 50-year working career. And it seems to me, therefore, that we should all plan to have at least two different careers. And possibly more. Uh, I've always been interested in uh, uh, people who've done a variety of things rather than just one profession and stuck to that their whole working life and then retired. None of that interests me in the slightest. Um, it rather quite- goes against the grain these days because everyone wants to specialise uh, to such a great degree. And if you're seen to be a specialist in more than one area, you're seen as an amateur in at least one of those. Well, there may be some truth in that, and I think I could be accused of being a dilettante at some things in life. And um, you know, I, I, I don't deny that if you um, diversify, then you may have less depth, and um, you know, there are advantages to focus and specialisation, particularly in the modern, complicated world. However, the point you made at the beginning is we only have one life. Uh, it's important to keep interested. And lively, I think, for example, take philanthropy. I've served on the boards of a number of different charities and non-profits over the last few decades. And one of the great advantages of that is I think it teaches you things and you meet people that if you were only doing business, you wouldn't. So I would actually encourage all successful people in sectors like private equity or venture capital to seriously consider whatever age, but say in their 40s, the idea of um, becoming a trustee of a school or a hospital or some other um, non-profit, because I think it op- 
it broadens your horizons. And that should be partly what life's about. I think there is a risk if you only do one thing, you get dull and uh, you repeat yourself. And um, there needs to be more to it than that, I think. Yeah. Um, investing itself is, by its very nature, um, kind of, it's, you've got to have a broad outlook on life because, you know, you're looking at different sectors. You're not the specialist. You're not the, in most cases, the executive, the doer. You've got to stand above that. So that will kind of make, that, that probably adds to your ability to be a successful investor. Maybe. <laughs> I think one of the challenges for private equity is that although they pretend to themselves, they aren't the specialist in terms of how to run a business or a particular industry. I've sat on boards with private equity executives who are there telling the managers how to run the business and making decisions that I think should be delegated to the executives who are full-time in that business. And the arrogance sometimes of private equity executives in thinking they know best lets them down. I think there are some areas where uh, private equity are very good, you know, buying and selling, for example, raising finance. They're pretty good at that. Some of them are pretty good at, at picking talent. Uh, but above and beyond that, you know, knowing markets, knowing competitors, you know, understanding the intricacies of the technologies that they're working with, really being able to spot the best executives at, at the operational level to work with, mm, not so sure. I'm, I'm sure you're right. And I actually, I, I, th I think I do agree with you, but to play devil's advocate slightly, if it didn't work, would they would they do it? It's, it's certainly that the the trend is for greater activism, and certainly the institutional investment community buys the idea of interventionist private equity firms. So presumably they look at the data and think, well, the, those that are a bit more muscular in their approach with executives do better. There must be some cause and effect. There probably is if they're the right uh, private equity firm, and as you well know, you know it depends which quartile of a PE house you're talking about. Um, I think we're all humans and I think private equity investors have as much ego as anyone. And, uh, you know, according to Maslow's hierarchy of human needs, once they've developed a certain quantity of wealth, what's next? And obviously what's next is some degree of, of status. And uh, that would mean them adding value and making a difference. And being important in the ownership so that the value accretion is partly thanks to them. Now, I would normally accept that the financial engineering aspects of deals are probably down to the PE house, i.e., have they bought it on a low multiple? Can they sell it on a higher multiple? Have they added the right amount of leverage to goose the returns? Uh, have they made a clever bet in the first place? All those things, of course, are down to them. But um, above and beyond that... Uh, you know, quite often I think, you know, it's debatable whether they really make a difference. Now, I think there are some very good private equity investors, and I would say on average, you know, successful private equity investors are clever people. And, um, you know, obviously if they succeed and they, uh, you know, get backing from limited partners and, and show good returns, then they can't be that thick. However... It's amazing what leverage in a rising market can do. 
And, uh, you know, generally speaking, over the last two decades, certainly, you know, it's been a, a pretty uh, good game to play, I would say, private equity, in terms of uh, accumulating uh, returns for investors and, indeed, enriching private equity investors. Uh, I think, and I'm not talking about myself so much because I'm not really an institutional private equity investor or executive, but um, I think it's as, as good a career as one could pursue if, you know, you want to get rich in a pretty safe way because you are playing with other people's money to a very large degree and, um, you know, you, you get a, a very, you can write very big checks. And so if you get your bets right, then you do extremely well. And to a large degree, um, you know, uh, heads they win, tails other people lose. So, you know, private equity as a career has proved a pretty good bet. And I suspect it will continue for some time because, um, you know, there are a lot of organisations raising big funds and there's a lot of parcel parceling, which to a degree, you know, is, is self-fulfilling. So but you've packaged yourself up to some degree as one of those people, because yes, you're not an institution, but you've got risk capital partners. Um, you could have just been Luke Johnson, the the big wealthy investor, but for, for some reason you see it as useful to be seen as part of that community. Well, I think probably a lot of people prefer to deal with a brand, an organization rather than an individual. I think an individual is more egotistical, inevitably. Um, I think when we set up Risk Capital Partners over 20 years ago, uh, uh, the sort of private office was much less common. I guess if one were doing it now, you know, that's what I would do. Also, I have more money now than I had 20 years ago. Uh, in the meantime, we also did raise a fund with limited partners and, um, you know, it's, say for one investment, is is now spent and we're returning funds and it will show a good return to our LPs and um, I think it's been a success, but I didn't want to do another one. The point about a, a fund, of course, is it's a very, very long-term commitment. It's really a 10-year commitment from all the partners and indeed, obviously, the limited partners. So it's a very unusual structure in terms of most jobs, if you like, uh, and and it, it really is a partnership arrangement rather than an employment arrangement. And um, all the longevity and uh, loyalty required that that displays. And indeed, I think if you look at the history of most PE houses that have fallen apart, more often than not, I would say it's because the partners fell out. Mm. You know, and that may have been because they made some bad investments, but quite often it's literally personality clashes leading to the you know, founding partners of the organisation not getting on, etc., and um, that's what leads the LPs to then desert them. Uh, but I'm not in denial about the fact it's it's a a, a lucrative and um, on some levels successful structuring of um, buying assets because I think there will always be the advantage they have over, say, public companies, in that private equity are virtually always willing to buy and sell. Every asset is for sale, and they are always willing to buy a new asset. 
public companies are slaves to the cycles of the stock market. And very often, in my experience, public companies are forced to sell at the bottom and buy at the top. And it astounds me how often I come across situations where there's a public company in a particular sector that will know that industry very well and have huge synergistic advantages of making a strategic acquisition. But for a variety of reasons, they're too slow or it's at the bottom of the market or whatever, they can't make the acquisition. Private equity, which doesn't know the industry as well and doesn't have any synergistic benefits, makes the acquisition and then flips it to the industrial buyer a few years later at a huge profit. And, uh, 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 you know, you wonder why does the public market always end up paying more? And I guess it's because private equity are ultimately really M&A specialists. All they do is buy and sell in a sense. And that's what they focus on. They're small and flexible. And they have this great timing advantage, which really plays to their strengths. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think it's, um, it's, it's one of those things and there isn't a problem with it as long as um, the, those rewards are accessible to as many people as possible. And one of the problems is that anyone can invest in the public markets, but it's, it's increasingly easy to invest in private equity vehicles, but it's still pretty difficult for your average Joe. Yeah, and of course, as we know, private equity still only represents a tiny proportion of the overall savings and pensions money out there. And uh, as a proportion of overall institutional individual portfolios, it is growing. But it's still, I would imagine, worldwide, you know, under 10% mm. across most uh, diversified forms of uh, um, savings. And uh, it it is going to grow structurally. More allocation is going to be devoted towards private investments of one sort or another, be it VC or PE. That's probably a good thing. I'm not surprised, even though, you know, 2 and 20 relative to public market management fees is high. The level of attention required in investing in private companies is a great deal more intense. So, you know, I would argue it's, it's justified to an extent. Um, and the returns are there. And um, another area where I think private markets have an advantage is they are more willing to put higher levels of debt into investments, generally, in my experience. Public company fund managers don't generally like to invest in companies that have three, four, five turns of EBITDA senior debt, whereas many PE houses are perfectly comfortable with that. Indeed, they would consider that a standard level of leverage for a normal buyout. So, you know, that financial engineering in rising markets and growing businesses compounds returns. Yeah. And uh, it's another advantage that PE has over public markets. So just at this point, may, can we step back? Because some of our international uh, listeners might be wondering, well, where have you come from if you're not a mainstream private equity guy? Could you give us a quick potted history, maybe looking, starting with, well, wherever you like, but particularly like Pizza Express as a signature deal. Sure. Okay. So in my late twenties, um, I and uh, a, a group of partners um, took control of a private business called Pizza Express. We merged it with a, um, a group of franchised restaurants. Pizza Express is arguably the leading uh, pizzeria chain in the UK. Uh, it's been going since 1965. Uh, we took control of that in 62, 63. Uh, we took it public. 
Wasn't it 82? Um, no, 92, 93. Oh, sorry. Okay. Sorry. sorry. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, go on, go on. Uh, I'd only just graduated from university in 1983. No, no, sorry, you said 62. So, yeah, you're right. Yeah, 92. 65, it was founded. Yeah, okay. Sorry, yeah. <laughs> 92, 3, we took control of it. It's your buyer. Okay, let you go. <laughs> Uh, we took it public uh, and it was very successful. And I was chairman of that during the 90s and um, the shares rose from 40p to £8 more. And uh, off the back of that, I then started doing more deals, uh, initially mainly public company deals. And then through the later 90s and into the 2000s, many more private companies. And, you know, over the decades, I've probably invested as principal in 50 or more businesses with a strong bias, as you said, towards consumer and in particular areas like um, hospitality and leisure, uh, mainly UK. Um, and, you know, at the smaller end, I, I would characterise the classic investment I do as development capital. That's my preference. So frequently backing a founder, uh, not always taking majority stake, quite often a minority stake. Um, yes, we do buyouts, but quite often not. Uh, and pretty flexible in terms of the types of deals we do in the structures. And um, I think that's because, to a fair degree, most of the time we've been using our own money, my money. And so we can do bigger and smaller deals. We can do longer-term deals. And um, clearly, we don't have to do any deals at all. I think one of the reasons I chose not to raise a fund when our last one was exhausted was... As I say, it's a 10-year commitment. I'm 60 next year. And I didn't want to be marching into my 60s with a sort of, you know, seven, eight-year commitment still to go of making, you know, a minimum number of investments and a minimum amount of capital deployed every year. And it's been very interesting to me over the last 18 months of the pandemic, a lot of private equity houses, particularly in 2020, sat on their hands Grave mistake, I think. They should have been out there doing deals. Were you? Yes. And, um, uh, you know, a lot of them were underinvested anyhow. They had a great deal of dry powder. They're now even more underinvested and they under, are under huge pressure to invest. And, you know, ultimately, a P house that doesn't get money to work is no good to anyone. Mm. So they will get their money to work. Unfortunately, they may well end up paying too much. Now, usually, private equity is pretty good at avoiding those sort of cycles, as I said earlier, and, you know, they're astute people, private equity investors, so they're very reluctant to overpay. But I sense that quite a lot of houses have got their back slightly up against the wall in terms of the pace of investing, and that's not a comfortable place to be. And I'd much rather be in a situation where you take a year off. Mm. Things are too pricey, conditions are too difficult. I won't be investing this year, thanks. Yeah, And then do twice your usual number of investments when times are good for investing. Yeah, so you have that flexibility, which mm. is an advantage. We'll come back to maybe the structural advantages, but you mentioned you were active in 2020. I mean, what's your view of the market and opportunities out there? Well, I'm very much a niche investor. So, you know, I'm not putting 100 million to work ago or 200 million, whatever it might be. You know, I'm investing 5, 10, 15 million pounds mm. in each bet. And I think in the end of the market that I, I tend to operate in, there are opportunities. Um, two or three of the deals I've done in the recent past have been um, distress. 
And there's obviously some of that going on, particularly in some of the sectors I'm familiar with. Uh, and those are deals that the vast majority of private equity houses are not geared up to do, don't feel comfortable doing for all sorts of probably good reasons. Um, There's not much experience of doing distressed deals. No, I mean, there are obviously a handful of specialists that only do them, mm. and some of them are very good. And really, I'm really impressed by the quality of some of those uh, deal doers. Um, but they tend to focus only on that. Again, they would tend to be doing slightly bigger deals than me. Uh, and some of the deals I've done over the recent past has been modest, if any, competition, which, you know, for most private equity players is is very hard to achieve. You know, generally speaking, every single deal is got proper advisors and intermediaries and is well-marketed and, um, you know, the the assets are touted widely around the market mm. and uh, there's plenty of competition and you get a, not a perfect market, but a pretty good market uh, price achieved mm. for most assets of, of, of quality and, and size. Mm. Would you say that, um, so I'm just trying to get to grips with what the secret of your success is, which obviously you can't put on a, on a napkin, but I'm wondering if, um, to what to what degree would you say um, you use your intuition when you are um, assessing whether something is a good opportunity versus uh, bringing in the advisors and um, producing reports for you know like so a typical investment executive would then have to go to an investment committee and it would be uh, a group decision but it would also be a real discipline in terms of dotting all the i's and crossing the t's and making sure that there is a really uh, explainable, calculable case. You don't have to do that, so you can rely more on your intuition. To what extent do you? Well, I think having the discipline and having uh, group input is vital. And, um, you know, there have been occasions in the past where I have not been as rigorous as I should have been, not within our fund, but with my own money. And sometimes it's blown up in my face. And, uh, I, you know, I've tended always to be at the sort of higher risk, higher reward end of investing. So, you know, I'm much less interested in steady investments that will, you know, gradually make me twice my money. I'd prefer to go for things that make me three or four times my money, but occasionally go wrong and you lose everything. Uh, and obviously that's highly undesirable and never part of the plan, but it can happen in life. Um, it, it, normally, it doesn't actually happen with deals I do because of leverage. It's because the business hasn't worked. Mm. Um, I, I do use intuition, and inevitably we are, uh, you know, social animals who you mentioned at the beginning of this meeting how much better it was face-to-face -face than on Zoom. I completely agree. That's all about what you might call intuition and being a human being. Uh, I think private equity investors who pretend to themselves that it's all science and spreadsheets are under an illusion. Mm. I suspect none of them do actually think that because otherwise they wouldn't be successful. Mm. Um, no, I think having checks and balances is essential and they come in all shapes and sizes, not just credit committee, but of course lenders and others will have their own, you know, impositions. I think relying exclusively on you know, the accountants and lawyers and other specialist advisors to tell you all about the business 
rather than doing any of your own personal due diligence and um, having at least some in-house capacity of taking a commercial view on a situation and the people running it and so forth uh, is a mistake. Um, and, you know, I have to say, having worked with some bigger PE houses, some of them are very good at all that, both having in-house resource but also getting incredible work from advisors. So I wouldn't decry any of that at all. I think it's important not to be slavishly uh, obsessed about the reports. I think you have to look at the big picture. Uh, you, you almost certainly at some point have to take a view. I think sometimes, you know, I've seen PE houses miss a deal because they let relatively small issues cloud the thing and someone else is more willing to um, step back and say, you know what, nothing's perfect, mm. good enough, I like it, etc. cetera, uh, and it's the right price and so forth. Um, you need a bias towards optimism to some degree. I think anyone in capitalism does, yes. Yeah. You know, if you don't believe in growth and you don't believe in a positive future and you don't believe in the potential of the business you're backing to um, deliver value, then you probably shouldn't be mm. staking money on it. Uh, uh, so, yes, and I think probably ultimately most PE houses have that frame of mind or the individuals working in them, and so they should. Um, and obviously, you know, as well as making a turn on the multiple and uh, the magic of leverage, the other biggest element in any private equity successful investment is growth. That's the thing that will ultimately deliver the really great returns, growth. And indeed, it's also what the buyer at the other end looks for. You know, I have occasionally invested in businesses that have very little, if any, growth, and they're quite hard to sell because, you know, people don't want to really invest much in stagnant businesses, and why would they? Yeah. You worry that if he's not going forwards, he's probably going backwards. Yeah. You alluded to the fact earlier that you, you, you invest in relatively small deals, and so they can be the specific situations that you're assessing. But particularly, I'd say, at, at the moment, is is it not uh, increasingly important to take a more of a macro view as well, given the interventionism, let's say, of the state in various sectors? Uh, are you having to, are you trying to factor that in when you look at new businesses in areas that could be locked down? Well, it's a very serious point and um, pretty profound for anyone who's involved in markets and uh, free enterprise and so forth, you know, have the rules of the game change such that the government will force you to shut uh, in a way that would never in modern history have happened before and, and you know, destroy the value you're trying to create here. Uh, I'm sort of, without being um, ostrich-like about it, I'm of the view that these are things one cannot influence and generally, therefore, you can you know, give yourself a heart attack stressing about them all night long. I think you have to try and focus on your own specifics of situations where you can make a difference, mm. uh, both in your own life and your business. Mm. And um, I guess I'm taking a view generally that, you know, with regards to, for example, lockdowns, which have impacted certain sectors like travel very severely indeed, Ultimately, society can't afford many of these more. Mm. They're just too expensive, both economically, 
psychologically, uh, socially. And so, uh, uh, you know, the harms, the undoubted collateral damage of lockdowns are becoming ever more apparent, as was obvious, because they're diverse and long-term, whereas, of course, daily hospitalizations of de and deaths from COVID are, you know, on a daily basis. But, um, you know, governments can't keep printing money, I don't think, in the way they have done to pay the bills. And, you know, some of the bills for both businesses and governments are starting to fall due. Uh, we've got threats like inflation and so forth and so on. So big picture means I don't think, you know, countries like the UK and, and many others can really afford to do many lockdowns, let alone the fact that I think the proof will increasingly show they don't make much difference. So they really aren't worth it, mm. both health-wise and well-being as well as economically. And... um Therefore, I think, you know, it's probably a pretty good time to take a view and say, obviously, to a large degree, thanks to vaccines, but also the, the terrible costs of the interventions are such that they cannot be repeated again and again. And so, as people keep saying, we have to live with the endemic disease and get on with work and, you know, start earning some money to pay the bills, which means decent businesses... Uh, that might be shut down if there were another lockdown are probably a reasonable bet, but there's got to be a discount somewhere in there. Mm. And, you know, clearly if one's constructing a portfolio, you don't want to bet exclusively on businesses that are vulnerable to being shut down. And I know one or two PE houses where, you know, big chunks of their portfolio have been closed for much of the last 18 months. I'm very lucky and it's absolutely luck that I'd sold a whole raft of businesses over the previous couple of years, which would have been smashed to pieces mm. by um, lockdowns. And um, thank God I did, because it meant that although I did have uh, uh, certainly a couple of businesses that are, you know, in sort of recovery mode, shall we say, having been severely battered, um, <coughs> if I'd had a half a dozen of them, it would have been significantly worse. Yeah. I think you've got to be right to just focus on what you can influence. And yeah, I do find it surprising that there's so little commentary on the potential fallouts. Like economists used to issue press releases if we had a public holiday telling us how much it cost the British economy. And yet we've been in partial lockdown for two years and, well, they don't issue press releases about it generally. It's like, it'll be all right. We'll just go along as, as if nothing ever happened. Um, so I think... I think you're right. You have to just focus on what you can, what you can influence. But there probably will be a reckoning. Well, I think there needs to be a reckoning because I think overall it can be argued that, you know, in certain ways society slightly lost its marbles over the last 18 months. I think the toll across many aspects of communities uh, in terms of, for example, children and education, young people generally, the, the damage to them, um, the irrationality and lack of evidence base for some of the interventions and so forth and so on. You know, we don't want to get distracted into that black hole. Uh, is such that, um, you know, in, in hindsight, in the years to come, I do think we will uh, realise that uh, grave mistakes have been made. And I'm not talking about you know, locking down two weeks too late. Mm. I'm talking about the very 
um, essence of universal lockdowns and the harms of, you know, unemployment and, um, you know, the, the divisions it creates in society between those who have to still go out to work and those who think that everything now is working from home for forever. Speaking personally, one of the toughest aspects has been people thinking in a rational way when they're all isolated. Yes. And I think for myself and I believe for many others that actually you get things more right if you are debating it with others in person. Mm. And I think the idea that uh, we're all thinking rationally because we're on Zoom calls is deluded. I think there are very profound differences. I know for myself, I've had hundreds of Zoom board meetings and such like, and I can tell you now they are very, very dysfunctional mm. compared to a proper board meeting with people in the room. Really? Definitely. No question of it. And, um, for example, if you've got a large board and most large organizations and institutions have large boards, there is a massive predisposition towards people not dissenting of any kind when there's a certain number of people on a Zoom call. They are much more likely to stick their hand up or nod to the chair or do whatever it is to say, yes, I just wanted to bring up this one point. Can I just question this? It's extraordinary how often... A non-executive for argument will do that. And then two or three others will say, yes, yes, I was wondering about that. Does not happen on Zoom calls. Yeah. And you look at our leadership and the key advisor groups, for example, you know, in public health and others, that have been making these draconian and extraordinary decisions all on Zoom. Not good debate. Not good vigorous discussion of what are the, you know, uh, cost benefits of this. Have we thought of the whole picture here? Mm. And uh, I think that's been going on a great deal. And I think because we're all snug at home, particularly those better off, powerful people who run society in industries like private equity, the fact that, for example, you said at the beginning of this meeting, this is the first time I've had one of these uh, interviews for 18 months. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had like that because I've been in my office and meeting people if I possibly can since May last year. Right. But every banker, every accountant, virtually every institutional person I know of, mm. fund manager, P executive has been at home the whole time. Yeah. And I don't think that's conducive to critical thinking. And it's so easy to say, well, what's more efficient? You know, everything oh, bows down it's, to... It's convenience. Yeah, convenience. Yes, you're right. Efficiency is the wrong word because efficiency suggests getting it right. It's convenient. Mm. It's a bit like getting home-delivered food. It's very convenient, but mostly it's shit. <laughs> yeah. I'd rather eat in a restaurant or have proper cooked food at mm. home yeah. after you've done some shopping than a crappy meal that is probably more expensive, home-delivered. Yeah. And yet it's harder to articulate the benefits because they're slightly intangible and they're, they're harder to, to put hard quantification on. And you also kind of alluded to the, everyone talks about quality these days, but there is a real inequality element to this whereby white-collar workers like you and I could choose, choose to never leave our homes again. Yeah, yeah. Well, FT and economist readers love it all, yeah? 
because they run the world and um, they're very comfy. They've got gardens. Uh, someone collects the rubbish. Someone delivers their food. Uh, they, you know, get stuff on Amazon. They s- might see more of their family. What's not to like? And they're safe. Meantime, every year, every day in Britain, 10 million people are having to go out to work to keep the broadband going and to uh, deliver the groceries and so forth. And that is a more pronounced inequality on many levels than I think ever in our lifetimes. Mm. And, um, you know, there are so many serious issues that arise from this, such as, for example, has furlough undermined a chunk of the portions of, 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 the, of the nation's work ethic? Mm. You know, at its peak, nine million people being paid to stay at home. Why wouldn't they want that to continue? Is the real reason people are willing to accept lower quality output from working from home because it's saving them money on commuting? I think that's a big factor as to why lockdowns have had such enormous support, seemingly. It's not the science. It's because people are saving money on their fares. What's your policy or preference with regards to the companies that you own? Or own? I want them in the office. Now, it's obviously up to <coughs> individual bosses. I would say, you know, if they think they can run things efficiently and, um, you know, it makes more sense for their particular shape of their workforce to do it at least partly from home, a hybrid model, flexible, I get it. And I think workforces these days will increasingly demand that and companies that insist everyone is in the office every day may struggle to recruit or retain people. Um, Although young people might find it more attractive. I think I would have done that. Of course. And I know I do. And I think there are, it depends on the business and, and the industry and the people in the work. Um, I guess people in my generation are much more likely to say, we've all got to be in the room. Those who are, you know, much more used to the, flexibility, should we say, of video conferencing, might argue, no, let's stick to what we're doing now. And of course, there are lots of things that can be done perfectly competently online rather than in person. Mm. But when it comes to anything critical, a key pitch or um, a key sale or uh, uh, interviewing someone to hire them or whatever it might be that really matters, then I see there is no substitute for doing it in the room. Yeah. And uh, I passionately believe that. And I think actually it has been a competitive advantage, I believe, over the last year in doing stuff that I am in the room when people are willing to be. Yeah. And uh, I think it's helped clinch deals and given me an insight that people who are relying exclusively on Zoom, you know, have missed. Yeah. It's the Woody Allen quote, which I'm going to get wrong, but two-thirds of success is showing up. 90%. Okay, we'll go with that. <laughs> um, leave us with something optimistic, positive. Can you tell us about a deal you've got in your portfolio you like the look of or something about the world that you're optimistic well, about? Um, to use that bogus venture capital phrase, pivot, I have slightly pivoted towards areas that are more digital, inevitably, because... Historically, you know, I've invested heavily in areas like retail and hospitality, which means, you know, shops and restaurants and cafes and pubs and hotels. And, of course, all of those 
you know, have struggled over the last 18 months and face possible challenges going forward. So I would still invest in all of those sectors, but I've also made uh, an e-commerce investment last year into a um, gardening products business. It's called Primrose. And um, that has an October year end, but we think it's going to deliver for this year's results because it's had the principal season now. And we're happy with that purchase. We bought it almost a year ago now. And um, I think it's a good sector. And I think e-commerce in that space is growing. Uh, gardening itself has boomed during lockdowns. And I think some of that will stick. Mm. Um, <clears throat> and we are looking at further e-commerce investments uh, because obviously it's going to take an increasing part of the market in terms of people's overall retail spend. So what's Primrose's model? Do, do you have to go onto their website to buy their stuff? or do they yeah, sell yeah, yeah. Through it? yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, they have an app and so forth too, yeah. but uh, mostly people are on the website and, you know, it's exclusively, it's not an omni-channel, so it doesn't have any retail outlets at all. It only, it's, you know, only digital. Um, <clears throat> and it's quite long-established business. Um, and uh, it's quite a fragmented sector, actually. There are quite a number of, digital players in uh, the overall gardening space. Um, and, you know, it's a sector that we've stumbled across but we like, and um, I think there's more to go for. So, uh, yeah, I would say that was uh, a deal that we're excited about and we think has has lots of potential. And, um, and so inevitably, you know, if you look at e-commerce generally, you know, you're up against Amazon, but there are some sectors that they are perhaps less focused on, and I think gardening... You know, mm. has some logistical challenges. Gardening, for example, uh, that Amazon seem less interested in, right? Uh, yeah. And they're such a dominant player. Ideally, you know, you don't want to be directly competing with them. Mm. We do work with them, actually, as most people do in e-commerce. But uh, ideally, you get people on your own website. Yes. Um, and so, yeah, that's one business we've bought recently that um, we think is uh, interesting. Great, Luke. Well, it's been. Great catching up with you in person. Thanks very much for sparing your time. Thank you. You've been listening to the Fund Shack podcast. Make sure you subscribe and visit our website at fund-shack.com for many more video interviews. It's the private capital channel for alternative investment professionals. Thanks for listening.